Welcome to Great Minds, a wine-centric podcast where two wine-loving friends take a look beyond what is in the glass. We look at the stories, we look at the culture and the history behind the wine. I'm Gina Birch. And of course, you know, we drink a little wine while we're doing it. Oh, yeah. My name is Julie Glenn. Uh, We've been talking a lot lately about diversity in the wine world. We're moving into March. I know. Well, March is a Women's History Month, which is something that we are very near and dear to both of our hearts. And we're highlighting some amazing women winemakers, women winemaking teams, learning their stories, and enjoying, of course, some of their amazing wines with none other than Chelsea Barrett, winemaker of Matera Cunet Family Vineyards. Welcome, Chelsea. Glad you could be with us. Hi there. Thank you for having me. So Chelsea comes from what I would call winemaking royalty. Yeah, kind of. You know, if you ever watched <laughs> the movie Bottle Shock or heard the story about the famous Judgment of Paris, Beau Barrett was the winemaker at Chateau Montalena. He was the one who made the wine that beat the French in the infamous competition and put the California wine world on the map. That guy is Chelsea's father. <laughs> and sorry, Chelsea, but, you know, we got to brag on your parents a little bit. Uh, we think their greatest creation, of course, is you. Uh, but uh, it's oh, thank you. <laughs> but we have to, you know, give everyone a little backstory here. And Chelsea's mom, Heidi Barrett, is the queen and creator of the so-called California cult wines, uh, names like Screaming Eagle. So Chelsea, you grew up with some pretty amazing, running through some amazing vineyards and 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 in the barrel rooms and that. Um, I'm sure you have some unbelievable stories. I wish we could get to them all today. But it would seem to me like a given that you would go into the wine business. But was it really, I mean, did you ever think of doing anything else? Or is this just so in your veins that it was just not even a question? Um, Absolutely. Like, I feel like I'm one of those people who could be happy with a myriad of careers. Like, there's a lot of things that I absolutely love. And I mean, I still think think of that sometimes. I'm like, oh my gosh, is it too late for me to become an interior designer or, you know, all (laughs) these other things of like, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that what I love about wine is what I love about everything else too. There's a lot of different skills involved and there's so much variety to it that uh, it never becomes stagnant. And so I, that's what I find really, really satisfying is um, the ever-changing nature of it. Well, that's the same with interior design. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> or veterinary sciences. Yeah, right, you know. <laughs> yeah. Anything like that. So you but mean- yeah, as a kid, I mean, I was I was always in the vineyard and I was always, you know, going to work with my mom and, you know, that was just, um, you know, a very normal thing or after school hanging out at Montalena, drawing pictures in my dad's office. And so, yeah, I mean, I've been in vineyards and wineries my whole life and that always seemed like a very normal thing to do. But I don't know, I guess with kids, like if your parents are, you know, no matter what career you have, you don't really think about it too much other than that, like, these are just your parents, you know, they go to their jobs like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had some of the best teachers, wine role models around the world, but still there are things that you have to learn and experience on your own. Um, what did that look like for you? I mean, where did your path lead before you ended up at Matera? Oh, sure. I mean, I would say, so things that I did growing up, like, you know, my summer jobs and things as a teenager, you know, when I was racking barrels and things, like, I had no idea why I was doing what I was doing. Like, it really came with the technical education of, like, going to UC Davis and then really learning all of the theory and like the amazing professors there. Uh, And then my sort of journey after that, uh, my first job out of college, I had an internship at a winery in Austria called Meyer and Farplatz. 
Um, and so that was, I mean, I, it's just so eye-opening. I learned a ton there working for a winemaker named Dragos Pavelescu, who's Romanian but lives in Vienna, and um, just incredibly technical winemaker. I learned so much from him, and he and I are still good buddies and trade research papers back and forth and kind of, you know, check up on each other every vintage. Um, then after that, I worked in Australia for Two Hands, um, more in the cellar on that side. So super physical job, really long hours and exhaustion and a lot of, you know, a lot of moving barrels by myself and racking at all hours of the night. Uh, and then I did a research internship with Opus One and worked for Michael Salachi and um, worked on their phenolic maturity project, which um, I really got a lot out of, of learning, um, just fine-tuning my lab skills. Uh, and then I worked for Joel Gott Wines for seven years, working from enologist up to winemaker, uh, seeing a huge amount of growth and working with fruit from all over California. And then um, after I had my second daughter, uh, I was looking for you know something a little bit smaller and to slow down and wanted to work on more boutique scale stuff again. And then mm-hmm. I found Matera at the same time as they were looking for a new winemaker. So it's worked out really, really well for me. Perfect. It's interesting. It's kind of like, you know, you think it's a birthright or this whole royalty thing, even though you're like a wine princess, <laughs> you still had to do all <laughs> the stuff, you know, yeah. like you did the technical skills, UC Davis, and then traveled the world and got the, the street smarts. You got the book smarts from school and, and then experiencing uh, wine and winemaking in so many different places. And I think that's kind of interesting. And I would imagine that in Austria, that kind of had maybe some similarities to Calistoga for you, weather-wise? Um, weather-wise? Ooh, actually, like the polar opposite of really? Austria. I mean, it's, um, I mean, I, I lived in Vienna. Like, the reason that I picked that versus, like, Wachau or Bergenland or another area is this was – I'm from Calistoga. I'm from a 5,000-person town. Like this, and then I went to a cow town for college. Um, <laughs> this was my first real shot in my life to live in a major city. Like I could, you know, take the bus to work every day in Vienna, and then when I had a day off, I could go, you know, to these, you know, amazing museums. So mm. that seemed like a pretty good, you know, opportunity for me. Um, but yeah, it was freezing. I'm definitely like very Californian, and you know, have a hard <laughs> yeah. time with cold weather, and like getting up and going to work in the snow is. Um, it's tough. Oh, no yeah. kidding. So I'm wondering, um, because of your family, uh, I'm thinking it might be a little bit like, let's say, uh, Michael Jordan's son playing basketball, or maybe Serena Williams' daughter, like picking up a, a, a tennis racket. I mean, the world is watching, and they can't help but have some expectations of greatness, right? So um, did did you ever feel that, or have you felt that, or did you just were you just blind and like, hey, I'm my own person, I'm just doing my own thing? Oh, wow. No pressure. Yeah, right. Um, No pressure like that has ever come from my parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't really, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really get to me the pressure in that way. Because, um, I mean, so much of winemaking is very solitary. So it's not like I really feel people breathing down my neck or anything. Like I'm mostly just like in the lab, you know, tinkering on blends by myself um, a lot of the time. And so, no, um, I, I don't really feel that because it's not something I experience um, on a regular basis. Cool. You know, like with the whole like hive very, of... A very small... Uh, yeah, I mean... Like a, the whole hive of the, the wine world, wine you know? All the wine press, the wine yeah. world, all that kind of stuff. And that would be, I think, where the pressure might come from. But mm-hmm. if you're able to just not pay attention to it and just not care, that's... Just do your thing. Gotta be great. 
So yeah, the, I most I mostly don't really pay that much attention to it because it's just it's a very small percentage of the time I'm actually doing my job. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's tell ahead. me about your job. Yeah, I'm kind let's of excited. Talk about you, it. So how how do you define yourself? Kind of like as a winemaker, what's your jam? What's your thing? Ooh, I don't know all kinds of things. I'm definitely like I love research. I love you know um, experiments and. Um, reading up on that too, but I would say generally more, especially now with Matera, now that I'm working with really more of a single vineyard, like I love walking in the vineyard every single day. I love, you know, looking at the little changes and figuring out, you know, is this block, you know, pruned exactly the right way? You know, like I love kind of paying attention to my spot now. Um, But I definitely see myself as, you know, more of a, um, I'm, I'm definitely more comfortable like in the cellar and the lab than in the vineyard based on that's just where I've spent more of my career. Um, so yeah, I really love, you know, the ins and outs of the really, really technical parts of winemaking um, and fine tuning that. Well, I'm, I'm kind of like, I love blending. I'm sort of geeked out on the whole phenolic ripeness project. That would be like so fun mm-hmm. to just really dive into, especially if you're already kind of. you want to hear more about that? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, I just, you you mentioned it like offhandedly. I'm like, oh my gosh, that would be so cool. Because that's such a, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, I don't want to say an intangible, but just a hard to achieve thing for so many winemakers. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really awesome thing about that Opus has the resources to do something like that and to collect all of that data. I mean, because it really is like, it's a full-time job for a person during harvest to collect all of that data, analyze it, and then write it all up for, you know, findings of how do, um, how do these blocks differ from each other in a given year, and then how does vintage, does vintage differ? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so overall, I mean, the short version for something like that is it's really, really difficult to um, track something for qualitative versus quantitative data. So, like, tracking the amount of tannin in something doesn't necessarily tell you anything about how good that tannin is going to taste. Mm. Um, So people still go back and forth on this type of stuff all the time for phenolic assays and how valuable are they really. Um, But it's still a good marker for, you know, figuring out, is there a difference between two blocks and is there a difference between vintages? Right. No, that that is fascinating. And it's like you said, you know, wine is a a lot. There's a lot of science involved in wine to get uh, what we're drinking in this bottle to taste so good. And what we are drinking right now in our glass is your 2019 uh, Sauvignon Blanc. So tell us about this one. Oh, awesome. This wine, this is one of my very first wines that I made for Matera starting Mm. in, um, I started in 2019. So that's probably the very first thing that I made and, you know, start to finish to the bottle. Um, so it's all from our state here in Matera. Um, we're in Oak Knoll, so a more uh, fairly moderate weather for the valley that it doesn't get quite as hot or as cold as some of the northern regions. But it also, you know, does get pretty warm here. So it's awesome, you know, steady ripening weather for Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, we have a Musquet clone, too, that's a part of that blend that I love working with. That's that what that flavor is. Extra tropical notes. Yeah. yeah, it can sometimes almost seem a little bit peachy, which is mm-hmm. cool. Um, yeah, so I mean, pretty straightforward. I love, you know, Sauv Blanc to be just a really bright, acidic, tropical. It should be, you know, a lo- just a lot bursting out of the nose and super easy to drink. Get a little so, herbal Not too complicated on Sauv Blanc. Right. No, I totally, yeah, I do love it though. Yeah, there's freshness there too. Right. It, it's really good mm-hmm. though. It's, I just love it. It's very straightforward, like you mentioned. And, but it's, it doesn't have all mm-hmm. that, um, 
sometimes they get bogged down in, into the grass and the grapefruit and the too much. And it's just, I just this love this. This is nicely balanced. This is, I just, yeah. Exactly. Hmm. I'm a fan. Thank you. And yeah, I love making Sauv Blanc. That's nice job for your first start oh, to finish wine. Yeah. <laughs> well, Edmontera. <laughs> right? I mean, it makes me salivate yeah. in the back, but it doesn't make, but doesn't give me heartburn going down. Mm-hmm. So it's got that, both of those things that are, um, that are good. This is a, this is a perfect summer wine or shellfish wine or even salad. You know, I could see this with some green vegetables. Even, I'm going to go out on a limb here, perhaps asparagus. And we know how difficult it is to pair asparagus. Yeah, that is a tough one. Yes, that's mm-hmm. true. It is sometimes asparagus is lifted just enough by things like you know Sauv Blanc, by Muscat, anything that has a little bit of that freshness and then some of that tropical character, but still a lot of acid works pretty well. This has some good viscosity to it too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nice. It's a good mouth coater. <laughs> good mouth coater. I like it. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's let's have some of this sh- this Chardonnay. Um, this I love the labels on these. They've got a little metallic. They're kind of uh, fancy looking. Are these new labels, or is there something uh, different with those? Or no, um, those are the original label that we have. Like a few different labels that we're still kind of playing with uh, mm-hmm. for you know different sort of projects, but. Yeah, that's been the label since I believe 2007 with the uh, the metallic foil on it. Uh, so you have the 2019 Chardonnay. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that also um, difference there, the way that well, so all of the fruit is also still from the Matera estate here. Um, a few different clones, which is really fun. Of add some different character to you know just makes makes for some added complexity. Um, what else can I say about that? Yeah, I use about 25% new French oak for the Chardonnay, mm-hmm. and then that gets uh, stirred on the lees for every two weeks until we bottle in July, so about nine months in barrel there. So um, still, I'm a, not a not a malolactic fan, and uh, yeah, I, I like Chardonnay to have quite a bit of acid. Yeah, this does have acid, but it also has those characteristics that you... you um that people expect from a Chardonnay, you know, some of the, some of the, the, the nose and the after the, the, uh, on the back palate, the back of the palate, mm-hmm. I get some of the, um, what do I want to say? Like a buttered popcorn, but not too much, just a hint of it. Maybe. I feel like I'm yeah in a cellar with a whole bunch of bo- uh, oak barrels and I'm breathing in through my mouth. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like go. it's a, it's a whiff, you know, but it's not like I'm chewing on an oak chip or right. anything. I love when they do mm-hmm. what, like you do with the oak, but without the mellow. I just, I think that that is critical and important, and I do love this. And well, I can it smell gives it some roundness. I mean, I st- this wine has roundness, but it, but it still has that acid that you were talking about, mm-hmm. that crispness. It's a, it has a little bit of both. Good food Exactly, wine. yeah. I always want Chardonnay to have some tension of like having that creaminess, but also keeping that acidity. Um, makes it so that, you know, you just want to have more. Like, I never want to have a Chardonnay where, like, you have a couple sips and it's like, okay, I'm bored now. This is, you know, too flabby. Like, I want it to be something that you can just keep coming back to. I know Matera in the past has always had really good Merlot projects, good Merlot, and some, and you have some Malbec. So yeah. uh, let's talk about some of the reds that you are diving into now. Okay, yeah, that's the main, Merlot is the main grape we have on the Matera property here, which, um, I'm very excited about. I'm a big Merlot fan. Some of my favorite wines in the world are Merlot dominant. Um, but right now, um, the only Merlot dominant wine that we have at Matera, we label as Right Bank um, mm-hmm. because I think people still have enough of an aversion to buying something called Merlot. 
um, mm-hmm. and we're hesitant to delve into that. But we also still want to really promote that, like, we love Merlot. Like, we're, we make a great Merlot. We're in an awesome spot for it. Um, but I also love Merlot as a blender in my other wines. I use a good amount of Merlot in my cab blends. In uh, We make a red blend called Midnight that also has a, quite a bit of Malbec and Petit Verdot in it as so well. so good. Um, but Merlot is just so inviting and juicy and approachable. It's really versatile as a food pairing wine. So yeah, I think everybody needs to, needs to give Merlot another shot. Yeah. And especially if it's called right bank, you know, for people who, who say, oh, I don't do Merlot. You put that there and let me share with you a little bit of, uh, (laughs) yeah, for real. Exactly. (laughs) Get off. Yeah. I think it's a good thing where it's like, it's kind of a, you know, wink to people who understand, you know, Mm -hmm. what right bank means for Bordeaux. Um, that it's, you know, it indicates like it tells you what's in it without saying Merlot. So are you, these are a smaller boutique uh, winery. What is your production? For Matera, right now we're about 4,500 cases annually. That's not much. Mm -hmm. Are they they distributed for them? Not that well. We're still growing on that. We have a new new distributor in California that we're just starting with um, this month. So we're still... We're trying to grow the property here. Um, I mean, we have enough fruit. We have enough facility size to grow. But right now we sell a lot of fruit. since Matera is still a very young brand. Um, so we're still selling a lot of fruit. We have a lot of our winery filled with custom crush clients. So the goal really is to, to continue to grow Matera and make more wine here. I have to ask a question, you know, because this is uh, Women's Women History Month. And being that... Uh, I, I know things have changed a little bit in the wine world, but still not to the volume or, or the, the levels that a lot of people think it should be when it comes to women in the cellar, making the wine in the field. And your mom was one of those who kind of, I think, um, broke a little bit of a ceiling with what she she has been doing. Has uh, Can you kind of comment on, on that, where where we are today and... and uh, and what challenges, if any, that you've faced as a, as a woman in this field? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would generally say that I think it's become, it's so much more common than it was a generation ago. Like, you know, 20, 30 years ago, yes, it was definitely much, much rarer. But then now, I mean, I can name you probably, you know, off the top of my head, a um, hundred other female winemakers. And so it, it's really not that rare. Like I, I work with other women on a regular basis of clients here, friends of mine from Davis. So um, there are heaps of us. So I'm always, you know, I bristle a little bit at the idea that we're like, like a, you know, minority that like there we're, we're here, like we're, you know, doing amazing work. There's a lot of women that I really respect who are doing an amazing job, but I very much realized that this is recent history. You know, when, when my mom was first starting out, like it, women were very few and far between. So the progress that's been made is absolutely amazing. But Davis was more women than men. I think my class was 60% female. Wow. It's so much so, though, and, and it's so recent, but it's so old school to be kind of that way in the, in the old women don't really get a chance to do these kinds of things and all that kind of thing. That is so not okay that it's almost like people, yeah. I look at people that, you know, college students that we work with here at the station and um, I'm looking at them like, you don't even know some of the stuff that went on in, mm-hmm. in my lifetime. And I'm not that old. 
I mean, I'm kind of old, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's just like I mean, this inappropriate stuff and things, you know, all that. It's just like wow. I mean, it's it's so outdated that it seems almost laughable to think that we had to deal with that, deal with that, and observe some of that uh, that kind of I don't know being pigeonholed the way sometimes yeah. people per, uh, pigeonhole Merlot. Poor little Merlot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so I would say like some of the like sexism that people experience in you know not just the wine industry and in any job really but I think it's it's nowhere near as flagrant as it used to be Mm -hmm. um of you know things that happen to people I've heard some stories that are you know truly appalling um and um but generally I would say now like there there tends to be a trend where I would say it's as I get higher and higher up in my career as there's fewer and fewer sort of like command jobs of like head winemaker jobs where there's only, there's really only so many. Um, Yeah. I would say that's still true to this day. There are fewer women uh, in those positions than men. Um, But seeing my friends who have left the wine industry um, isn't necessarily because like something bad happened or they weren't really getting promoted part of it is being drawn to the tech industry of, so I have a number of friends who've seen like, Oh, hang on. Like for the skills that I have, I could make way more money and work better hours doing this. If I, you know, move to Oakland, like, bye. (laughs) Um, So there is a draw of that. Um, So like how much of that is, you know, that the wine industry is like needs to improve for women versus um, we're just being out competed for, you know, strong talent by other industries here. That's interesting. What do you love most about making wine? Uh, I guess I'm already the, the variety, but I also love to share it. Like I love yes. having something that I made and that I can share with my friends and we can, you know, nerd out about it. Like I still, all of my buddies, you know, we, we trade wine, we talk about it, we give rep- each other our, you know, brutally honest opinions. Um, so I love that communal nature to it. And um, I love to network. I love my technical association and just sort of catching up and, you know, sharing ideas with my buddies. We love communing over your wine as well. Yeah, we like we're we're happy to be able to share it. It, it is really quite outstanding. Yeah, we can't get we're gonna get the reds next because I'm a big white nerd. So you know, mm-hmm. I, I just dig the white grapes. So that's kind of my my jam. Thank but, you. Me too. Yeah, they don't get near enough love, yeah. and it's so sad that they are just um, price pigeonholed. So it's, it makes it hard to kind of make a, a fun boutique weird oddball red. When you can only make so much, and then you got to price it outside of what anybody's going to pay for something, you know? That's true. I think we're trying to combat that with Matera. Like, we want the wines for Matera to be to be accessible. So we have sort of a range of prices. And so I, I would say the, um, you know, the I think the least expensive of the wines is the Midnight Red Blend, which is Malbec, Merlot, and Petit Verdot. And I want to say it retails for 38 mm-hmm. uh, which I think is pretty killer for a tasty Napa Red. I think that's hard to beat. Um, but, yeah, so we are trying to make it still accessible. We want people who are new to the wine industry to not feel intimidated, to feel like, yes, come to Matera, try our delicious wines. And, uh, yeah, I, I want people to feel really welcome and not, um, not kind of off-put by, like, oh, this is expensive and I don't know enough to, like, feel like I'm really going to get the most out of this. Right. Well, Chelsea Barrett, again, is a winemaker for Matera and the Kunet Family Winery. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. We love your wines. We love your story. And keep doing the great job that you're doing. It's been really fun talking with you. Thank you so much. You too. 
Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producer for online media is Tara Calligan. Great Minds theme music is from Kansas City band Victor and Penny. The song is You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To by Cole Porter. To get in touch with us, check us out at greatminds.org. For Julie Glenn, I'm Gina Birch. Thanks for listening. Under an August moon burning above